I'm Ellie Kumar and this is My Voice, a series of conversations where we highlight the work of black and Asian people in the arts. We'll be hearing from some of the most exciting voices in literature, art, theatre, poetry, filmmaking and more, and tackling issues like representation and diversity in the industry. Today I'm chatting to Elizabeth Chakrabarti, who's about to release her debut novel, Lessons in Love and Other Crimes. We discuss the struggles of cracking the publishing industry as a person of colour and how to talk about love from a place of hate. It's been a long journey, but I've always written. You know, I was, I was a kid that wanted to be an actor or writer. I went to a youth theatre group as a teenager. I always loved books and theatre and dance and, um, and music, the arts, the arts in general. Funnily enough, I was listening to your podcast with Catherine Johnson this morning, hearing her talk about her career. There's resonance with mine. I met Catherine in the 80s when we were both independent filmmakers. So I left university, I did a drama and English degree in London, and I got a job in the feature film industry very quickly, actually, through people you know, which is one of the things that, you know, is an issue about the arts, really. And I got into making films. I wrote scripts, and in those days, there was still a bit of funding, and, you know, you could get funding in kind, like costumes, etc., from designers. And um, so, yeah, I was making scripts. I was also always writing in those days, I wrote a lot of poetry and I would perform my poetry at events, you know, that, that, that came, up, came up in London. And then I got into various arts jobs. Eventually, there was, a, there was a kind of turning point in my life where, you know, to live in London is really difficult. You hardly earn any money in the arts. I went into teaching, part-time teaching, while I was still doing some arts jobs. So I was, I was working for Birmingham International Film Festival. Like I was having this ridiculous buying pints of milk at Euston Station, you know, between London and Birmingham. Teaching was something that really helped, actually, because I, I taught books, and some of those books I really loved, you know, and, and I taught I taught English and drama it was an amazing time because I worked in an inner city I worked in a number of schools but inner cities inner city schools and I I taught kids that were like me you know that wanted diverse role models that wanted to see them reflected in the arts that we read and watch etc I moved into working in higher education and I started getting published <laughs> Through, uh, because of my research, basically, um, I had a promising researcher grant, and and I I wrote about race and terror and youth creativity, so my interests. But my work, my writing, became more experimental. You know, I wasn't a straightforward researcher. I did bring myself into it. I wrote about my experience of being raced, basically. Usually, basically, I was always the only person of colour, let's say, in those environments. My writing actually became about the experience of being raced within those environments. You know, people sort of saying, oh, are you related to that one that reads the news? You know, with my surname, that, that, that kind of thing. And I mean, I've, I've, written about, I've, I've written about this. But then I was always writing fiction. And, you know, for years I've, I've written, like lots of writers, I've written a number of novels. And this is the first one that's been 
picked up. So I've had other things, other other creative writing published, but it's been an amazing journey actually, because obviously in that time I've had loads of rejections. I think people don't talk enough about that, but particularly in terms of the diversity issue, you know. So when people have said on Twitter, oh, you know, it took me three years to get an agent and and I've been thinking, God, actually, it took me 20 years, but it's fine. You know, it's been a, it has it has been an amazing journey. But I did a writing residency in Barcelona and it was actually being away from the UK that I met my agents. When you talk about it being such a journey, I think it's so important to talk about that. And I know some of the other the people we've had on, we have talked about that in terms of just how long it can take for people to really want to hear your voice in terms of like writing and novels yes it's a really hard industry anyway and everyone gets rejected as well but I suppose there's that added element of when you're a person of colour trying to get your voice heard as well and I mean was that what you found? Incredibly so you know of the rejection letters I've got I mean you know let's talk about intersectionality because obviously the you know these issues are about race, they're about sexuality, disability, class, and there are rejection letters that have been, I mean, one I got said, oh, actually, we've already got one other Asian female writer, so we can't have another. And part of me thought, well, does that really mean, you know, in literary agencies, they have some kind of how many of each ethnicity they're allowed to have? And of course, you know, of course, it's not true. No, of course, it's not like that. Similarly, I got, I remember getting a rejection letter saying, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got one lesbian author, you know. And the thing is, it's also like the letters, you know, the letter you send out with your manuscript. I didn't label myself as a thing, actually. I mean, these are labels that, in my experience anyway, are used, are used as a way of rejecting people as opposed to accepting people. I mean, obviously, during the past year, Black Lives Matter, I think we've had a lot about publishers saying, oh, you know, we're, we're signing um, this, that, or the other, you know, new young black author, which, which is great, but one wonders whether, you know, it's a bandwagon and whether they will support those writers through their careers. I think like deeper than the kind of rejection, you know, deeper than the sort of surface rejection of, you know, we don't want another person of color, whatever it is. But I think it, there are subtle ways that people reject you on racial on a racial level without using that as a so so for example I'm, I remember getting one which was oh this novel is too quiet right whereas in actual fact I mean I'd read loads of novels in that period which would be seen as quiet novels you know quiet novels are usually I've always assumed anyway the sort of novel where not a lot happens but it's a woman and um and she's going through sort of emotional personal crisis now and I and I sort of wonder well hold on if a man does it actually because there are lots of male writers that write that kind of quiet writing but they're big names and they get a big marketing budget and they're seen as people to look up to in literary circles so What's been very interesting for me and what's been an amazing in the past year, especially considering, you know, I got signed just before lockdown, was that this is a novel that is about racism. At times it's very raw, at times it's very personal, although it's fiction. And I feel immensely happy to have been signed by the agent I did because she was there with me right from the beginning. And similarly with the publisher, you know, they've been very supportive about me writing about racism and interested in that story and the quiet elements of it, but also the genre elements of it. So, you know, the fact that I have 
played with the novel genre and they were just so excited by it. And so in terms of the book, you sort of explained a bit sort of where it's come from, but where did it grow from inside you, I guess? It's the culmination of just decades of my experience of racism. The initial inspiration for starting this book was, as I said, based on personal experience. So, so obviously I've experienced racism throughout my life. I live in the UK and I'm mixed race. But what happened was I'd you know, moved, as I've already told you, from career to career, job to job, and I started a new job. And in many ways, it felt like the perfect job. I was teaching you know, what I really love to teach, performance, creative writing, and literature. And what happened within that time was I experienced a considerable number of incidents of serious racial harassment to the point that well, I had to go to the police very early on because of the nature of the incidents. The workplace was supportive, but the ongoing nature of it over the year, I did, you know, apply for other jobs, but obviously I didn't get the other jobs at that point because the impact on me psychologically of that level of racism within the workplace was anxiety inducing. You know, it just, it just controlled my whole life. That was the initial inspiration was I knew during that experience that during those years that I I had to write about this it was it was that thing I've got to put this across to people what racism is like and what it's like to experience racism within the workplace and how does that impact on every other element of your life from for example you know I used to get really worried about going to work because um, generally whatever had happened happens on a Monday morning that Sunday night feeling that people have in jobs. I mean, I got even more, especially because I was, sometimes I was commuting. So, you know, I'd be getting up at five anyway. So I'd hardly have slept. I mean, now, you know, I've left that job. It's a couple of, couple of years on. So, so I knew that I wanted to write about that experience. One of the things that I also wanted to put across was how difficult it is to talk about racism within institutions but also within sometimes within friendship groups and within families there's a limit in a sense to how much of one's trauma you can put onto other people you know you have to actually learn so so one of the things that I did actually was I got to this stage where I didn't talk about it that much partly because I knew I wanted to write about it but but also because it was just there and I was coping with I was trying to cope with it and go through go through life I gradually, I got really into reading crime fiction through all my commuting. Um, it's something that I've written about actually in um, an essay that I wrote for the Indigo app on closure and crime. So I decided what I'm going to do is take the actual incidents, what actually happened to me. So to give an example, I mean, one of the things that came, comes up in the novel that really did happen to me in real life is that photographs of me that were on display, my body was sort of mutilated in those photos. So what I decided to do was very much inspired by, by um, Margaret Atwood, actually, in The Handmaid's Tale, was to actually take the real specific incidents of racism, but put them in a fictional con- context. And I play with genre 
point, you know. And so this whole issue of closure, which obviously I have not had closure. Mine is still a case there with the, with the police. I've moved on, I've moved home. I've, um, I no longer work in that place, but it's fiction. The racism is fact. And the book also has metafictional elements where I disrupt the narrative and point out, for example, this issue of closure, that if you haven't had closure, I haven't had closure. I'm playing with the genre in the sense that, you know, I want a happy end. You know, we, we want happy end. Readers want to be able to close the book, know what's happened and then move on. So one of the things that I do in the book is explore that um, and explore that in a, the writer as well. The writer wants to find out what happened, for example. One of the main things in the book, one of the main kind of issues is of the main character like being believed as like the first step, I think, in, in any of this. And, and it not just being, oh, but are you sure? Are you sure that that's what that was? When in yourself, you know, and you're saying, yes, this is exactly what this is. I've seen this before. It's happened before. But trying to, I guess, get that across to a management or an institution who obviously don't want to deal with that. I mean, that was something that kind of I saw in, in the book and really made me kind of, you know, when you're reading and you just go, yes, yes, I agree. And I mean, that's that's been obviously something that you've dealt with. And I guess so many people in the same position have, have had to deal with. Did it feel good to be able to kind of talk about it and put it out in the world and kind of put it down on paper? Yes, yeah. I mean, it's been immensely, well, in some ways it's given me closure actually to write this, to put it down on paper and also to then have conversations with people like you about it, you know. Also, it's, how can I put it? It was, it was something that I've been thinking massively, actually, the last few weeks of how important it is for our society, you know, Britain's Brexit society, let's say, our transitional society, that we talk about racism and we don't shove it under the carpets. A bit like, you know, listening to your uh, podcast with Catherine Johnson. It's really interesting because obviously I know Catherine from years ago when we both worked in films and how we deal with racism has changed since that time. So obviously in lots of ways I think things are better because we're allowed to talk about it and we've had the McPherson inquiry but then we've also had you know the fallout from that that there is still a massive amount of racism and I, so just to give the, the the thing that really made me think yeah we have to talk about racism in this country is because the most recent example was when there'd been the Meghan and Harry interview and I saw the headlines I think it was the next day or the day after and it was Prince William saying uh, the royal family is not a racist family and so I was just thinking well what is a racist family? And why does a whole family have to be not racist? You know, it, it doesn't reflect what we know about even the voting records of people in this country. So I just thought, God, you know, if institutions, which obviously, are, you know, the monarchy is a white supremacist institution by its very nature, if, if they are allowed to reject allegations of racism in that way, because there's lots of other things, other ways that he could have dealt with it, he could have said, I'm really sorry that somebody in the family talked about this potential mixed race baby in the way that they did. So for me, it is really important because 
like most people, I've had so many times when people have said, oh, but you can't call that racism. And sorry, actually, I can. If I felt something was racist, like, I don't know, like, for example, having, you know, curry paste put on my office door handle, which is what happened, one of the things that happened, I do see that as racist, because for white racists, curry is seen as something to do with Asian culture. I have an Asian name. If, so if something's on my office door where my name is, an Asian sounding name, then that act is racist and I'm going to call it racist. And, you know, now at this point in my life where, you know, I'll probably never work in that kind of job again um, because of the nature of what I've gone through and, you know, how it's impacted me. And also just because I don't want to anymore. I don't want to put myself through that. I want to talk about it because society's got to change. It's the 21st century. You know, we don't want Britain to go backwards, but it could. You know, it, it really could. And I think the pandemic's shown that with the large number of ethnic minority people who've died during this time. And, you know, the kind of racism that some of the, particularly the medical staff, but also taxi drivers, public workers have talked about their experience of racism during this has, has been, well, unforgettable. I'm really glad that you, you mentioned the Meghan and Harry interview, because again, that was one of the things I'd written down. You mentioned before about how you deal with talking about racism in terms of your relationships and friendships and I'd literally finished your book I think over that weekend and then the interview came out on the Sunday night and, the mon and then on the Monday and on the Monday I mean I came into work and I had to do interviews about it and I interviewed one person who in the interviews to me said well I'm not racist but which is obviously the, the thing that everyone kind of, you always just, it sparks in your head. But my partner's white and I got home that night and I was, I felt so drained and kind of emotionally kind of exhausted. And I thought, and we sat and I had to explain why it was so upsetting and why it really hit me, the things that she was going through and obviously my partner's not a royal there's none of that anywhere there's no uh, there's no like massive mansions or anything but it, it it felt very personal to me of being a mixed race woman in a relationship with a with a white man whose family are all white and how do you talk about those feelings that you have and those experiences that you've had with someone who can't understand them on a personal level that is something that comes up with with the main character and her partner discussing these things with a white person who doesn't who doesn't have an idea about what this means and I'm guessing that's something that you you've had to do and I mean how do you get through that when I went through this intense it was a number of years instance of serious racial harassment in the workplace I got to a point where I stopped talking about it and that was for a number of reasons partly just because I was trying I was trying to get on with my life and it was so depressing that in some ways it made it easier but but it was also because with some people I didn't want like for example my mother so my my mother is amazing so my it's my mother that's why my father was Indian he's he's sadly dead now but um but with my mother I told her some of the incidents but I realized I just couldn't put her through it. I didn't want, I didn't want to 
tell her these awful things, you know, that, that had happened. So there was a difference. So for example, with my friends that have experienced racism, i.e. the people of color that I know, they all got it. And yet it was also, I also sort of wanted to protect them as well. I mean, it's, it's the, it was the most weird thing because some of them were going through stuff themselves in the workplace. Some of them had already gone through stuff in the workplace and had left those jobs. Sometimes it's, well, what are you going to say other than be supportive and, you know, say, God, I really wish this wasn't happening to you. With other friends, I talk about it, but sometimes, I don't know, sometimes it felt like people, particularly acquaintances, sometimes, I remember being at this dinner one night, one day and, and talking about it and somebody, somebody who was white, had said something like but you're in such an amazing job you know like you know that for somehow I should be able to put aside the racism because you know you're an academic and people look up to it so and just totally not understanding that racism is not that kind of you know it's a trauma it is a trauma you know that you carry it with you because sometimes you you're waiting for the other person to actually be race you know like you know it's going to come up and that's something that obviously I do I do explore in, in the novel. Like I put my protagonists through those through those kind of situations where people basically say, Well, how do you you know, you can't say it's racist. You don't know the intention of the person who did it. You know something is racist yourself, you know, and, and it is racist. It's, it's almost like racists are seen as innocent until proven guilty. But the person on the receiving end is never really innocent. So you do get people saying, God, I wonder why people are doing that. As though there is a rational reason for racism. No, there isn't. It's horrific and we've got to stamp it out. A lot of people I know anyway, they don't talk about it that much because it's just something that happens. But then it's really important to actually say, well, what, what is it? Because lots of people think racism is just, you know, using horrible racist words. How do white people know what it's like? You know, they, they think racism is just the extremes of Stephen Lawrence being murdered. And then at the other end, to go back to where you came from, where, whereas there's a whole string of racism, there's a whole spectrum rather. I've tried to give a kind of 360 degree rotation of these. And what I hope is that I'm representing, you know, I can only represent myself, but I'm representing what racism feels like, how it's experienced. But I've also looked at it in such a way that hopefully puts a magnifying glass on it for those people who don't experience racism and actually don't really know what it is. Because I think lots of people don't really know what it is. They know what the word is. But in actual fact, it is fundamental. It's a fundamental part to living in this country because if you're in a minority and if we are seen as being in a minority as opposed to just being British, it's always going to be like this. Looking at the structure of the novel itself and how it kind of blends the essays at the start and the different elements of the form, I guess, if that's the right word. It's been a long time since I did sort of A-level English and the, the structure of the novel, but I found that really engaging, the fact that it was not only the story, but you're explaining why and how and your thought processes behind it. Why did you decide to kind of do it like that? Well, thank you for that, because it's great to hear. It's great to hear a, a reader's, um, how, how a reader's receiving it. Uh, well, what happened was, you know, I knew I wanted to write about this, but through fiction. It came to me how to, how to start the fiction. I had this scenario that 
ironically, actually, I sort of had the end of it. I had the end of it. I knew I knew where I was going to get to. And then the rest of the fiction came to me. Okay, so actually, you know, it is going to, in some ways, it was going to echo. Actually, you know, what happened was I left that job where all this awful stuff happens. I, I did move back to London. And then, you know, since then, I've been freelance, etc. So I worked out a fictional way of being able to recount those serious racist incidents. And it was a genre novel. I mean, it was very, very much a genre. It was a crime novel. As I was writing it, as I was redrafting, you know, on the second draft, for example, I'd always got at the back of my mind, I needed to do something else. This wasn't sufficient. The genre novel, the, the, the idea of the genre novel kind of really, really worked because I, because I had all those components. I'd got the police detectives, I'd got protagonist, antagonist, and I'd got, you know, the different institution. But I knew that there needed to be more. And then I suddenly realised, actually, no, I had to put more of me in it. And I had to be able to say, yes, this is racism, what we were just talking about earlier. So the way that I came to that was thinking about, I set myself this task of writing in 13 steps, race-related incidents that led me to that awful point of this ultimate trauma. I've got to get out of a job because of racism kind of thing. And so writing that led me to the second essay where I started thinking through what is the process of how to write about this, how to fictionalise it, how to be entertaining. So so in that I, I write about what do I like? You know, what do I like and what, what's it like being a reader? What's it like being a reader of colour but reading white fiction? So I talk about what I call white fiction and some of that, the classics, and, ju- and just saying, you know, we suspend our judgment. The issue is, do all readers do that? You know, as people of colour, we, su- we suspend the, the, the racial judgment. That, that's how it works when we, when we read Jane Eyre or Hamlet or whatever. But then I thought through the racial dynamics of characters in contemporary fiction and what I like and what I'm often dismayed by in how white writers treat ethnic minority characters. So I thought through, you know, how am I going to treat white characters and ethnic minority characters you know, I don't want to do the thing that I would accuse a lot of writers doing in terms of how they portray ethnic minority characters as sort of peripheral, expendable, killable characters. You know, I don't want to do that to white characters. So in a sense that it, it, my thinking through, my process of playing with the format and playing with the form of the novel is there on the page. So I am giving that to the reader and um, showing the mechanics, showing the mechanics in some ways. You know, but, and, but at the same time, in the redrafting and editing process, I realised they've got to be chunks of just you're in this novel, you know. So I knew when to cut myself out of it. And, and then there were crucial times where, where I realised I had to come in. My writer's voice had to come in and say, actually, it wasn't like that. Actually. It was worse. In my academic work, I I used to use critical race theory. So I wrote a number of articles and book, etc. And one of the things that you deal with in that is microaggressions. So, you know, this idea of you taking a particular incident and examining it. So to give an example that comes up in my novel is when somebody um, shouts, go back to where you came from. 
people who I'm sure most of us have had this loads of times. I mean, I have. Um, but, but, but then one of the things I do in the book is I show the incident and then explore it. And that comes from the, my critical race theory background, but it also comes from the fact that what I've realised, and it is that when you try and explain to somebody who does not go through racism what it's like to be told that in the country where you actually live, it's really important that we we don't just dramatize the moment, but actually put some of the thinking, like what's the feeling, what's the psychological feeling when you have that spat out at you? And I mean, that leads on really nicely to this question that we ask everyone. And you can interpret this in whatever way you like. So in a professional sense, in a personal sense, in both. But so the question is, is, do you feel represented? No, I don't actually. No, I mean, I mean, I think that I've, I've thought a lot about the past year. Obviously, during lockdown, we've all had kind of reflective time, and I, I feel like I don't feel represented politically in this country. In the arts, I don't. No, I mean, I think there have been some, you know, great diversity initiatives, but the UK has a long way to go. And yet, you know, there are, I feel, I do feel reflected sometimes to look at it like that in some works. For example, you know, Bernadine Avaristo's Girl, Woman, Other, I thought was a wonderful reflection, you know, multicultural women and society. When I was growing up and, you know, going into my 20s, 30s, Hanif Qureshi, I think his writing has been great reflection of being mixed race and being Asian, being ethnic minority in London society. So, you know, that there are reflections. And I, I think the recent um, Small Act series on TV has, it's been fantastic to see black and multicultural history on a on small screen in the UK but it's long overdue so I think there's massive amount of work to be done and you know I suppose one of the things I hope about my my novel is that I've dramatized and fictionalized something that uh, will represent a lot of people's experience of the workplace but also interpersonal relations when they're experiencing racism. One of the other things that we see in the book is this male character, this the antagonist, creating a manifesto and these lessons. And that, I mean, again, you know, I read this book right at a peak, I think, in, in the last sort of few months where women's issues were being suddenly like a volcano kind of just erupting following the disappearance and the death of Sarah Everard and it really hit home this idea. And I mean, we've all seen these people who do this and who put these things online and, and put these manifestos out. But, you know, sometimes they're just really long, angry Facebook rants. And we've all seen them and we all kind of go, oh, okay, that's, that's there. But I think at the moment, and just having read it, so close to all these issues being brought up, you really felt the threat behind this character. I mean, how difficult was that for you to write, firstly? Actually, that's such, such a good question, because that psychopath, I mean, let's, you know, let's call it what it is, you know, was actually the easiest thing to write. 
because I know it. I feel like I've experienced so many people like that. And I've portrayed somebody that would on the surface be very likable and just, you know, a middle-class, middle-aged man that you wouldn't think twice about in, I mean, that in inverted commas, you know, you wouldn't think twice about, twice about. I don't know, it was actually really enjoyable. I almost feel like perhaps you shouldn't say that writing psychopaths are enjoyable, but, you know, actually it was because it's, it, it feels quite powerful to actually be writing in the, vo in the voice of a character like that, which in itself is quite interesting, you know, a non-vulnerable character. It's, it's empowering. So to, to live like a middle-aged middle-class white man during the writing was empowering and it was interesting you know it was interesting for me to write something like that and to get to like the character in a weird kind of way like you do I think you've got to like all your characters as human beings with their failings but you know obviously I had I had read and and you know watched a lot of crime drama and I had thought about you know psychopathic characters that was very interesting for me that in the editing process the parts of the antagonist were the parts that actually I hardly edited at all he was how he was you know? yeah of course and again not going into too much of the kind of the plot but what what I found was really kind of refreshing was that there were no excuses for why he's like this you know which I think, and I mean, I, I've not read masses and masses of sort of crime novels, but it does seem that a lot of times when there's kind of a, a like a psychopath character or the, the aggressor, there is, you know, he was treated badly as a child or there was that, there's, a, there's an excuse for it. And what I really liked was that there wasn't for, the, for this character. He, he's this person, this is, which I think is so important at looking at kind of how I guess people are in real life and you know not every abuser or racist or aggressive person has a terrible awful backstory and that's the only reason why they're like that exactly and I, I mean at one point my protagonist when she's thinking about whoever this person might be says they do it because they get away with it and so they can do it and they carry on doing it some people get pleasure from doing really horrible things uh, but there is that people doing stuff because they can and they get away with it. And we live in a society where it makes it very easy for people to get away with stuff like racism because it's not really treated as the crime it is. I know we, so we, I know we touched on this when we were talking about representation, but in, in general and in, in sort of all of these terms, I mean, all of these issues, do you think that there is progression being made or do you worry that actually maybe progression was being made, but now we're going backwards? I think that over the last few years, there is, there is progression. I think there is progression. I think it could go backwards. I, I worry about that. But I think that the certain books that have been published in the last few years and the series, you know, that, that, that I've already mentioned. Um, but I think there's, there is much more out there. And I think generally people are angrier like if you look at the black lives matter protests over the past year where people have broke covid rules and i think you know that shows the level of feeling so i i think we're hopefully we are at a turning point ultimately i guess to kind of take it back to your work um and not just not just lessons in love but also all of your work 
what would you want people to take away when they read when they read your books and when they read your work the key word is in the title love so this novel is a love story and it's also a hate story and I hope that people would see that what I try to do in exploring racism through fiction is also you know reflecting a love of humanity I mean love is a kind of key word in, in my work so I, I write I write poetry as well and it was interest it was interesting to me that actually this is this is also a love story how to tell a story about hate is through telling a story about love. Elizabeth's book, Lessons in Love and Other Crimes, is published on the 15th of April by Indigo Press. You can find out more about Elizabeth on Twitter. This Is My Voice is a series created by me, Ellie Kumar. Mm-hmm.